If you'd open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be looking at Revelation 4, but we're actually going to read Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. This is one of those uh, days when there is a lot of material to deal with, and I've had to choose to cut some things in order to fit our time, unless you'd like to spend until around 3 or 4 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, We could take a break for lunch and then come back and just keep going in Revelation, but um, I've had to cut and choose some things. But Revelation 4 and 5 are actually two chapters that uh, are, are one vision. They go together. And that leads into further visions. Actually, 4 and 5 become the foundational statements that lead to everything else that happens in Revelation. What, what John sees in 4 and 5 leads to the, un, uh, the opening of seals on scrolls. Uh, It's going to be a main call here in chapter 5 for someone who is worthy to break the seals. And we're going to learn about that story, how John feels that there is no one worthy to open the seals, and then there is one who is worthy, and why John, next time, we'll learn why John begins to weep when when he recognizes there's no one to open the seals. He begins to cry and weep, sobbing, that no one can break the seals and open the scrolls. But as we go on into chapter 6 and 7 on from there, it's all going to tie back to 4 and 5. Really, when we get to 22, it's going to tie back to 4 and 5. So these become very important, pivotal chapters in uh, in this letter that was given to us through John the Apostle. So we'll read... Chapter 4 and 5. And I want to say a couple things. I just was remembering this. I want to say a couple things before we get into this this morning. I said a few weeks ago that the study of Revelation seems to be a, a part of the Bible that is very intimidating to people and at times creates fear in people. A lot of people um, don't want to read Revelation. I've, I've heard that several times now since we've started this, that people don't want to read Revelation. They don't they read Genesis to, you know, and, and then Revelation, let's go back to Genesis. Let's go back there. Or they'll stay in certain places and there's certain passages in Revelation that are okay, but they really want to stay away from the scary things. And I get that because Revelation can be very intimidating to study. It can be very intimidating to preach. And honestly, there's some really bizarre stuff in here. I mean, it just is. As we get into the weird creatures with tails that are like snakes, and oh, there's just weird stuff. And so it, it can be kind of scary. Some of it seems very easy to understand um, and apply, such as chapters 1 to 3. Others, portions of it, are just very weird and frightening. And as we move forward in this letter, and we start to read about really strange heavenly beings like we're going to today, and we read about squirrels and seals and bulls and really bad plagues and ferocious destruction and the creepy beasts, um, I, I want you to remember a couple of things as we read those. First, 
And most importantly, the first thing you've got to keep in your mind as we go through Revelation, that this book is not a revelation of the future. That's not its intent. This book, this letter, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if all we walk away with was that was a really bizarre creature, you have missed the revelation of Jesus Christ somewhere in that part of the story. And as Jesus is revealed to us, we're going to learn who he is and what he's doing in this world now and what he has done and what he will do. Revelation jumps all around from uh, the, one who is, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. He, as the visions occur, we're moving all around in history, in the past, in the present, and in the future. But all of it is to reveal Jesus and what he's doing. In the first three chapters, it's been pretty easy to see Jesus because he keeps talking. And he keeps standing up and saying, I am thee. And then goes on and says, and to whoever hears my voice, I will give to them. The one who conquers, I will give to them. That's pretty easy to see how Jesus is being revealed. But in those first three chapters, Jesus is constantly revealing himself as the conquering king and speaking to his people, speaking to us about our faith and our obedience. The message that Jesus keeps saying to us through the letters of the the seven churches is to faithfully pursue righteousness in our present lives in this broken world while we look forward to when we will reign with him as sinless conquerors in a world without sin. There's this constant picture of revelation of brokenness and sin and powerful evil beings and Jesus stands with his people and points them away from this to what's to come trust me now trust me then this is where we're headed stop staring at all this over here stop being afraid of all this over here because I have conquered walk with me come with me We also have to keep in mind that this letter was written to Jesus' body, the church. Primarily, it was written to Jesus' body, the church. This letter is not primarily written to unbelievers. It's It's not written primarily to convince unbelievers of how bad things are and how much they need Christ. It's primarily written to believers to do what I mentioned earlier to keep your eyes on Christ and move forward with him to what he has promised. These churches that are written to are literal churches that existed, but just like the other letters to the churches, they carry on in time to speak to all of the saints today and for as long as God waits to finally finish his eternal plan. But as we read through this, Jesus is the touchstone of all of God's redemptive plans regarding his creation. What has been, what is, and what will come. It is, it is written to speak to us as God's children 
communicating God's power and glory through the salvation of his people and the destruction of his enemies. The bad things that we see in Revelation are for the enemies of God. That is why Christians should never come to Revelation and and go, oh, I don't want to... That is what's going to happen to God's enemies, those things. The plagues, the fires, those things are for God's enemies. Very similar to with the plagues that came upon Egypt, they sometimes they touched in some way the people of Israel, but the worst of them never touched the people of Israel. It happened to the Egyptians, as long as they obeyed what God said to do. And as we read this book, this letter, as God's children, we should be encouraged that justice will rain down. God has promised justice will rain down. And Revelation is telling us about the outbursts of God's wrath upon his enemies because of their sin. So justice will rain down. It will rain down on Satan, and it will rain down on all who follow him. So keep in mind, as you get to scary things, the scary parts of Revelation are not about believers. They are for those who reject Jesus, the Son of God, the conquering King. So, you ready to go forward? So we're going to go with chapter 4 first this morning. Next week, Scott's going to be preaching. And then the following week, I'll be back, Lord willing, and we'll look at chapter 5. But you can't separate chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 is speaking of God the Father. And it's all about worthy is the Lord, the Creator. God is worthy because He created And chapter 5 is about God the Son, and God the Son is worthy because he has redeemed a people for himself. So it's the worthiness of God the Father and the worthiness of God the Son. They are linked together, but uh, they are are separate. They're separate instances of praise, but we'll look at 4 today and 5 next week. I'll begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 4. And we'll read all the way down through the end of chapter 5. After this I looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings or, or voices, uh, just, just low voices rumbling, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like, like crystal, 
And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. <clears throat> and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks Excuse me, to him who was seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was open to, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and his seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went... And he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is... This is the word of our God. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Chapter 4 begins with two very important words. And these two very important words are going to come up again and again and again in this letter of Revelation. And those two important words are after this. In the Greek... There are two words, meta hutos, translated into our English as after this. And again, as we move forward in the middle of visions, you'll, you'll hear it. Uh, John will be having a vision and, and all of a sudden he'll say after this. It's intended by John to inform us that the vision he was seeing has either ended or has changed significantly and is now moving on to another ending, another vision. So John here says, after this, and he's saying, now these, this, this first vision that I saw where Jesus came to me on the Lord's day has ended. And I'm now seeing new things. And we see that the scene changes and the situation changes because he hears Jesus with this trumpet voice say, come up here. The heavens open up and Jesus calls him up. So it is a shifting from one vision to a, another vision. I, I don't know if I want to get this far into the weeds, but I'm going to do it anyway. There are places in Scripture where People have dreams. And when they have those dreams, like Jacob in the middle of wilderness with his head on a stone for a pillow and he's sleeping and he sees this stairway come down from heaven and angels are going up and down this thing. When they have dreams, as you would expect, they are asleep. So when you, when you hear the word dream in scripture, they're asleep and they are seeing these things happen, but they've gone to sleep. When you hear the word vision, it's a different scenario. They're not typically asleep. Typically, they're in almost like a a catatonic state where they're seeing things and they're hearing things, but it's like they can't move or their bodies are so drained of energy from watching these things that they they can't move, they can't get up afterwards. There are, there are stories where it's told in the Old Testament where they see God and they just collapse. It isn't that they, and I've mentioned this before, they don't, they don't, you know, kneel down. They just, it's like they turn into spaghetti and they just collapse. Uh, Ezekiel speaks of how then the Spirit comes into him and stands him up again and strengthens him to stand up and be able to communicate with God. Uh, the visions create almost a catatonic state where they're laying there. Paul, if you remember the story of Paul, he gets knocked off his horse. 
the voice comes to him. He gets knocked down, and and the people surrounding him can hear Paul talking, but they're not hearing God's voice. Uh, Daniel has an experience where he falls down on the bank of a river, and everybody around him takes off, flees, and hides behind the rocks. They can't hear God's voice, but they sense God's presence, and it creates such a terror in them that they go and hide, uh, running away from John. But John is just left there on the banks. Not John. Ezekiel is left there on the bank. Not Ezekiel either. Daniel. Daniel's left there on the banks. Got too many names in my head. Uh, he's left there on the bank by himself and then has to, in a sense, be carried away and recover from it after seeing God. John here is seeing visions. I, I, I don't know. I, John doesn't tell us enough to know whether he is standing up watching these things or actually laying down. There's the one where he falls down and Jesus touches him and brings him up to stand. We don't know what the rest of these visions, if he was standing or if he was on the ground or if his body was on the ground, but from a vision standpoint, he was standing or floating in the air. We really don't know. Um, but but I, I just wanted to give you the difference in case you were wondering, what's the difference between a dream and a vision? Dreams are typically asleep when God reveals something to them. Visions, they're typically awake, but they, they go into this state of being unable to move or brought to their feet, but they are seeing real things in real time, and they may be seeing things from the past. They may be that the curtain is unveiled, and they're seeing things in the present, but they're seeing things in the present spiritual realm that you can't see typically as a human being, or they're seeing events that are yet to come in the future. But as chapter 4 says after this, what I really really want to emphasize with you is John is telling us that this is a new vision that he is seeing. But we have to be careful. There's, there's a tendency because John says, after this, this happened. After this, this happened. After this, I saw this. After this, I saw that. And then we have a tendency because we are very time-oriented people, it's in our nature, to start stacking them up in order and saying that these are chronological events that are happening. When John says, after this, he's not saying, okay, at 8 o'clock on Thursday morning till 10 o'clock, I saw this vision. And then Thursday afternoon from 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock, I saw this. No, that's what he is saying. From 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock, I saw this vision. And then Friday morning, I saw this vision. But he's not saying, in 1999, this is when this is going to happen. And in 2001, this is when this is going to happen. And 2040, this is when this is going to happen. He is telling us chronologically how he saw the visions. But we should not interpret that, line them up as chronological in time and space moving forward. Do you understand the difference between those two? It's very important as we work through Revelation, and there are people who disagree on this. Um, there, there is one major framework of, of uh, approach to Revelation called dispensational premillennialism. They line everything up in chronological order as John says it. The problem is that Revelation is clearly not chronological. 
because he's going to be telling all these things happening. And we get to chapter 12, and it's a whiplash all the way back to Jesus' birth. So we are being given these, the after this referred to visions that John is seeing, and he's revealing them to us in the order that he saw them. But we should not, there's nothing solid for us to walk away and say, oh, so the next thing that's going to happen in time is this. Because it doesn't necessarily communicate that, if that makes sense to you. So, so I would strongly encourage you to jettison timelines. As strongly as we are set up to think in timelines and operate in a, a detail and our appointment schedules and all of that, that's the way God has set us up. As best as you can, don't try to force um, this book, Revelation, into a timeline. And that is where I disagree with every major view of Revelation, whether it is dispensational premillennialism, classic or historical premillennialism. I can't say it, so that's why I don't want to hold to it. Um, Amillennialism, I don't hold to that either. Postmillennialism, I don't, I don't hold to that either. I think that we get ourselves messed up in interpreting Revelation when we try to force it into a timeline instead of just understanding this is Jesus, this is who he is, this is the big picture, God reigns, God judges, God blesses his people. Okay, So let's just try to keep it in that framework. If you hold to one of those views... God bless you, you know, and I don't say that insincerely. If you hold to one of those views, um, I, I respect you. I respect your position, but understand I'm not operating from that. And so don't come and try to convince me of your position. Okay, don't, if you're a millennial, don't come and say, but pastor, if you understand this, understand that that's very condescending to me. Uh, and I might just possibly know a little bit more about the Bible than you might know, just possibly. I hate to sound arrogant, but that's a possibility. I might have thought this through just a little bit more than you've thought it through. And um, uh, and so just respect me. I have a good friend who believes in paedo-baptism, child baptism, Isaac Farrell. He preaches here for Good Friday. I love the man. He's a beautiful person. And he's a good friend. I don't agree with him. Guess what we don't talk about when we get together? We don't talk about how to baptize people. Because I respect him and he respects me. We just both agree on what's most important. And the same thing holds through in Revelation. I won't try to convince you of a timeline because I don't have one. You leave me alone on that too and we're going to love each other and get along really well. Don't get into fights in Revelation behind the scenes of who's right and who's wrong. In this particular vision, as I mentioned, Jesus, we know it's Jesus because he is described as the one whose voice is like the sound of a trumpet, which is what carries over from chapter 1 when he first speaks to John. Jesus calls to John and brings him up into what we refer to as the throne room of God. Having said that, I don't know that there is an actual throne room of God. Okay? You say, but you just said he brings him up into... I know I said that. 
But when we just read from Acts, as Stephen preached and the Holy Spirit recorded for us, um, Stephen says that God is not restricted to a place. The temple was built for him, but his response was, I don't need that because I don't dwell in temples made of hands uh, by men's hands. I don't dwell in, in just one space. But it appears in Revelation and Ezekiel and Daniel that at least at times God reveals himself to human beings who are far below him, who cannot fully comprehend him in his person and his majesty and his existence. At times he reveals himself to men in ways and women in ways that reflect how men and women think. So he, just as Jesus took on a a human body, at times God the Father takes on a human form. I'm not going to say he takes on a human body, but he takes on a human form. Okay? If you'll go back with me to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1. And by the way, you should read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. You should read Ezekiel um, 1 on your own because it's it really, what John is saying in Revelation is what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 1. When he gets to talking about God, he spends most, Ezekiel sees this same, pretty much the same vision and he's trying to describe what he sees. But in chapter 1 and verse 22, he says, over the heads of the living creatures. So in Ezekiel's, in Ezekiel's vision, the, the living creatures are below God, whereas in John's vision, the living creatures are around God. That could be the same thing. It's just how they described what they, they used the words to describe what they could. But it, it says, over the heads of the living creatures, there was like There was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spreading out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. Each creature had two wings covering his body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. So are you getting it that he's trying to think of every possible way that he could describe to people what he was hearing without feeling like he was doing a good job? When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. Okay? These are important words. There was something that looked like a throne. When you read the likeness of a throne, he's trying to describe what he's seeing. There was the likeness of a throne. In appearance, it looked like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. Okay? So, so what you should be hearing from Ezekiel is not, so it was exactly like this. Let me tell you exactly what it looked like. He's saying, 
I don't even know how to describe it to you. Okay, so there's like these four these four creatures who have these weird faces and eyes going all around and wings and they dart everywhere, which you'll pick up previously, and they just zip and zag. If they want to go this way, they go that way, and they go then and sometimes they come at you and they go back. And above them there they got this 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 thing that's like this massive piece of crystal, and on top of it is is this thing that looks kind of like a throne and it looks kind of like sapphire, blue, jewels. And there's kind of like something that looks like a human being sitting on that thing. Okay, you're picking up how Ezekiel's trying to communicate this? But he's not saying, I saw a body sitting on the throne. I'll keep going, you'll pick that up. A likeness with a human appearance of verse 27 and upward from what had the appearance of his waist. Okay. What looked like maybe was his waist. From there up, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist. I saw as it were appearance of fire and there was brightness around him like like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Okay, so Ezekiel is doing the best job he can to try and describe this and is coming up short. And he knows he's coming up short. And John's doing the same thing. He's trying to describe what he's seeing. So, so take that with a certain grain of salt. But when Daniel sees God on his throne, he sees God on clouds. It's like the throne is set up on clouds. Ezekiel sees it being born by the four living creatures sitting above this expanse of crystal. And John sees something like a throne sitting above a crystal sea or sitting on a crystal sea. And the question is, does God even exist in that form? And the answer is, we don't know. What all three writers want you to get is that God's God is glorious and beyond description and amazing to behold. And as John tries to describe it to us, he sees this throne as it stood in heaven. Was it on was it on a floor? He doesn't say. Was it in the air? He doesn't say. Was it on the roof of a building? He doesn't say. He just sees he just speaks of this throne. And he who sat there, verse 3, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Basically what John is describing is, as, as Ezekiel mentioned it, he's seeing this brightness. When Paul speaks of what God looks like, because Paul did see Jesus, he went into the third heaven, he saw Jesus, he was sent back, and that's when he gets the thorn in the flesh. He describes in later writings as as Jesus as one who God is one who sits in unapproachable light that he's so bright that it's it's kind of like you would be standing there trying to go like this it's like looking at the sun you just can't 
unless you're high on drugs, you can't stand and look at the sun for very long. So he's standing in front of this brilliance. And, and John describes these flashes of lightning that is the same thing that uh, Ezekiel describes. It's like there's a fire. Things are on fire there. There's like this, this cloud and there's flashes of lightning coming out of that cloud and there's peals of thunder and there's these rumbling voices that he's hearing in this noise. It's not the voices of the angels. It's not singing. It's not praise. There's just these rumbling, low-sounding voices coming through this lightning and this thunder. And if John hasn't wet his pants already, he's going to, just to say so. It's just incredible what he's seeing. And then he describes that there are these four living creatures around God around the throne, basically on each side of the throne. They're not below, they're around him. So if he's floating in space, they're floating around him. John says they have six wings. They have eyes all around their head. They can see in every direction. One has the face of a man, one has the face of an ox, one has the face of a lion, and one has the face of an eagle in flight. And the, the imagery is kind of like if this was a throne of God, and I'm one of them, I'm standing looking all around. And then the one is behind him, facing out, looking all around. And one to the side, looking all around with all the eyes. These are cherubim is what they're called. The cherubim in Scripture, as the best we can tell, their job is to protect God. They're the last line of defense, as if God needs protection. But in a sense, they are, they are God's watchdogs, God's guards. When Adam and Eve sinned, and there were, they were kicked out of the garden, and there were two angels that were assigned to guard the garden, they were cherubims. So as Adam and Eve left the garden, what they probably saw was what John saw. There are probably more than four cherubims, but this is what they look like. Uh, Ezekiel describes them as having cloven hoofs for feet, that they seem to stand up like uh, two-footed creatures, but they have six wings. Uh, Ezekiel describes them as four wings. Uh, They're not the seraphim from... Isaiah chapter 6, those are the burning ones that carry out God's judgment. The cherubim seem to be guardians of some kind. And they, the four of them have been chosen to stand by God's throne and shout praise all day long. As he looks at them, there's these four bizarre creatures there. I mean, you just think about what that would look like. It would just be strange. But there's these four bizarre creatures, and there's a rainbow. I want to sing Rainbow of Love right now, but I can't sing that low part, so I'm not going to. But if you haven't heard Rainbow of Love, you need to go listen to it. But this rainbow comes around the throne and continues 360 degrees. It's not a half a rainbow. Um, Ezekiel sees the same thing, and as John describes it, it's not a half a rainbow. It completely encircles the throne. Maybe this way, maybe this way like Saturn's rings. We don't know. But John says that 
Right, the rainbow is the colors of emerald. So it's varying shades of green. And green is my wife's favorite uh, color, which tells you how close she is to God's heart. If you love green, you must be. No, I can't translate that either. But it's like varying shades of green, this massive rainbow that comes around God. And we guess that it refers to both God's judgment and mercy. As John looks at, and Ezekiel looks at God and sees this rainbow, this 360 degree rainbow, he's seeing God in his, in his judgment, and he's seeing God in his mercy, which is what the bow is supposed to remind us of. That the flood came, it'll never happen again like that. It's gonna be worse. <laughs> it's gonna be judgment in the future of fire. But God will save his people out of the fire. Around outside of that, there are now four, 24 more thrones assembled around. And Daniel speaks of thrones being brought in Daniel chapter 7, if you want to look at that. But thrones are brought in Daniel uh, chapter 7. In this one, you have 24 seated, and they are elders. What those elders are, who they are, no idea. Uh, some people will argue that these 24 elders are um, represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples. So some people argue it's actually um, uh, Jacob's sons sitting on 12 thrones and then the 12 disciples sitting on 12 other thrones. Um, some people say they're just angels that represent those 12. Some people just say they're 24 very important angels. Some people say this, there's actually, uh, there's so many views on this, who knows. Who are they? What are they? Personally, I think they're angelic beings. And the reason I think they're angelic beings is because when they sing about Jesus, they don't sing personally about Jesus's redemption. They speak about Jesus's redemption and he's, re, he's worthy to be praised because of what he's done for humanity, but not for them. They never talk about it being done for them. So I would fall into the class of these are some kind of special group of angels. The Crystal Sea, wow. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the significance of the Crystal Sea is. Uh, There's a lot of various ideas about it. Personally, I would suggest, um, carefully suggest, that it could be the uh, representation of God being separated from his creation. That there is a separation from his creation, particularly human beings that cannot cross that expanse to get to him. But there is a statement that will come later in Revelation that the sea is no more. The sea is gone. And that correlates to the passage where God says, I will dwell with my people, they will dwell with me. So I would suggest that it is some form of, of uh, not actual, but a imagery that God is separated at this point, that as, as Paul says, inapproachable or unapproachable light, that you can only get as a human being so close to God in the final end of things, everyone will be able to get to God completely. But beyond that, I really don't know. So that's what he sees. And as, as, I, as I think about this and have 
just meditated on it, tried to envision being John in this picture, in this moment. I, don't, I, I wonder after it was all over, if John just sat back and said, that was just phenomenal. How, how do you even wrap your brain around what you just saw? And experienced. If he felt overwhelmed as he thought about it, if he if he just was giddy from what he saw and experienced, uh, if he was just totally drained from the experience. But I would I would suggest that John, when he sat down and started writing this out what he had seen and what he had heard and what he had felt because all good young men know that you crank the bass up on your radio or your stereo and you get not only an auditory experience but you get a physical, visceral experience as that bass thumps through you. So to have stood there and felt to be that close to the thunder and to feel it go through you and to feel the vibrations of of those voices that were rumbling and to have listened to myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands of angels which we'll talk about in chapter 5 next time you're over easily way beyond a million angels crying out and singing to God to have felt that and seen it and heard it. But the, the thing that I step back here with is that to John, the importance of this vision is not found in the experience of the magnificence of the person of God. What John focuses on here and, and tells us about and wants us to catch is as the four living creatures cry out, Holy! Holy! Holy is the Lord God of hosts. John wants us to understand that that the ones who have looked upon Him recognize how holy, how righteous, how perfect, how clean the Lord God is. Almighty is, and that He has existed from eternity past and will exist into eternity future, and there's never been a speck of unrighteousness on God. He has forever existed pure, true, without error, without lie. How many of you here this morning could say, I have never lied? Not even a little white lie. I have never been impure. I have never had a lustful thought. I have never coveted what anybody else wanted. I have never wanted to take vengeance just because my feelings were hurt. I have always loved every person in front of me as I should love my neighbor as commanded by God. 
And it isn't the magnificence of God found in sound or or sight, beauty of colors. It is the magnificence of God in His holiness that that these angelic creatures are continually falling down before God and calling out how holy He is. Eternally holy He is. And it's not only a praise, it's a warning. You don't belong, in a sense. Human beings do not belong in God's presence. Because these angels, if they had to say anything about us, would say, unholy, unholy, unholy. And you're like the flower that appears for a moment and withers like the grass. You're like the vapor that comes out on a cold morning from your mouth and vanishes away. That's who you are. That's who we are. We have no right to approach God. And in response to this declaration, and again, I don't know I don't know if this happens continually with God or if God allowed John to see him at a moment of worship time around God's throne. I don't know if this goes on 24 hours, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, or if Jesus said, come up here, and it was right at the time when there's praise of God going on, and maybe this doesn't happen all the time. I don't know. But for the time that John saw this, the four living creatures continually cry out about his holiness, God's holiness, and the 24 elders continually pull the crowns off their heads and fall down and throw them before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." And if those 24 elders were to follow up what the four living creatures would say to us, they would say, you are so unworthy. You are created. You should receive no glory and no power because the only reason you exist is because He made you. You have nothing on your own to claim. You are not powerful. You cannot make something. Wait, wait, wait. Human beings create things. We create things with the things that God has given to us with which to create. All matter. No matter can be created nor destroyed. It's a scientific law we live by. We believe, for those of us who have been trained in science, I joke that because no matter can be created nor destroyed, 
that there is no true weight loss in this world. If I go on a diet and lose 10 pounds, it goes to somebody else. So we should be, you, you all stop, need to stop dieting and let me give you my 10, 20, 30 pounds that I need to get rid of. That's my theory. So if I'm overweight, it's just, it's the laws, you know, it's the scientific law that I have to be overweight because I cannot destroy the matter. It, it has to go somewhere. It's your problem then. But seriously, all that we can do, any beauty that we can produce is only because God has created things with which we work. We are not worthy of praise. I know we have the Nobel Prize. We are simply discovering what God has known from eternity past. He has just allowed us to learn something. Sitting with Dave uh, Miller's family last week, and his brother was talking about how the mind works to think, and how the eyes work to read, and that those images come in through our through our eyes, and our brains have learned language and begin to translate that, and we can read written word, and we can write written word. And he said, how many generations of people before there was writing and reading had the ability to write and read before they discovered that they could? The Jews, the the Hebrew people with Moses, they were an oral tradition people for generations that... Those groups of people did not write out words, really. They simply told stories. How many people during the Middle Ages could not read? How many people today in other countries cannot read? And they don't even know they have the capacity to read. But but we think we have done such a wonderful thing to teach people how to read. And we almost act like we can glory in ourselves because we can read. And I can read fast. And I can read fast. I can consume a 500-page book in a, maybe two days and tell you what was in there. I can do that. But I can only do that because God created me with that ability to do that. But we glory as parents when our kids can re- be good readers and comprehend. We glory in our kids when they're good athletes. We glory in ourselves when we get promotions at work or recognition. We glory in all these things. And the 24 elders say, you are not worthy of any praise. You are created beings and anything you can do, anything you can accomplish goes back to the one who made you, not to you. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive the glory and honor and power because you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Paul tells us that Jesus holds all of this creation together by his thought. He's not up there, you know, like 
trying to keep the world here and keep Saturn and the sun and oh man, I got those galaxies over there. I need 10 of you to go over there and take care of that. Jesus is not stressed ever by his creation. And God the Father is not stressed by his creation. How stressed are we just to keep our day together? And all of this, whether we consider what was seen or what was heard, is intended to remind us of the glory and the power and the sovereignty of God, particularly the sovereignty of God over the affairs of his creation and the completion of his eternal purpose of redeeming his creation and eradicating evil. And there's this particular image in this vision that is also going to be in chapter 5 and actually is all the way through this book. There's this particular image that keeps, it's intended to keep bringing us back to God's sovereignty over his creation. So I'll give you a fun fact. Ready for the fun fact? There is a word used in the New Testament 70 times. Genesis, I mean, not Genesis, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way to Revelation. This word is used 70 times in the New Testament. Of the 70 times it's used in the New Testament, it's used 54 times in this one letter. I'm not smart enough math. My my superpower is reading, not math. So you can figure out, you know, 50, 74 and what percentage that is. I didn't feel like doing that. I didn't care. I figured it was it was interesting enough that of the 70 times, or 70 times 54, 70s, of the 70 times it's used in the New Testament, 54 of them are found in Revelation. And that word is throne. Throne. It shows up in the first chapter. If we go back to the first chapter of Revelation... The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The very first mention of God's throne is connected to grace to you and peace from him who sits on the throne. 54 times more, 53 more times it's going to be mentioned. In other words, What we are to gather from that is that this letter is permeated with the idea of power and authority. Even the two of those times it's used, it's it's in reference to the beast and his power and his authority. 
But his power and authority is limited. When it's used in reference to God, his power and authority is unlimited. We are constantly going to be reminded in the letter of Revelation that God is on his throne and his will and purposes are being accomplished. And no matter how bad things get as the seven seals are broken, no matter how bad things get as the beast establishes power, God wants us to know that Jesus Christ rules unchallenged and victorious over it all. As the events unfold in this revelation, we are told, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. And as the letter comes to an end, John tells us that there is a river of the water of life. The sea is gone. There's a river of the water of light, bright as crystal. Huh? That's an interesting word. Because that sea was crystal. Or looked like crystal. And now there's this river of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. How do we approach Revelation? Do we approach it going, oh man, I don't know. I sure hope there's going to be a rapture because I don't want to be around when the beast shows up. That's going to be really bad. And those big hailstorms. And man, you live in Iowa, you know. We've got tornadoes. We've got hailstones. We've got stuff. But it's going to be so much better, worse, and I'm afraid. We'll stop it. Grace and peace to you. From the one who is, who was, and who is, and is to come, who with the seven spirits are on the throne. And hey, there's going to be a day when we're going to walk into the holy city of God on this earth, not somewhere out in space, on this renewed, recreated earth without sin. And God's going to be sitting on His throne and in front of Him is this beautiful, pure, like crystal stream. The river of life just flowing out from in front of Him. Trust Him. He's worthy. He created. He's in control. He reign sovereign as I've said so many times over my years as a pastor and even before I was a pastor God either God rules sovereign over everything or he is not sovereign at all sovereign means you get what you want all the time in the way you want when you want it He is sovereign of everything or He is not sovereign at all. So walk in the grace and peace of our sovereign God. 
We are to be people who, as we read Revelation and come back to the foundational idea that the Lord God Almighty reigns, that Jesus Christ reigns, and the Holy Spirit is actively at work, we are to daily live with that recognition, and we are to live believing that because of our faith in Jesus, we are accepted by God the Father. You are not worthy to walk into His presence. But as we will see in chapter 5, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who has redeemed a people. So we are accepted by God the Father, and we can stand in His presence. We are commanded to come boldly into His presence. Not because of what we have done. Not because how many Bible chapters you read. Not because you prayed enough. Not because you made sure you confessed every single one of your sins. We are commanded to come boldly into His presence because we have been washed. We have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. You say, where is that at? Hebrews 10. We are to live believing not only that we are accepted by God the Father, but we are loved by God the Father. We are protected by God the Father. And He will not forsake us or forget us ever. We are to remind ourselves that our God is holy and that we should seek to live like Him, pursuing holy lives. As we remind ourselves that our existence is not about us, but for His exaltation and the accomplishment of His purposes because He created all things by His will and for His will we exist for His glory and the good of others. So I'm not sure how I'm supposed to live the Christian life. I just gave it to you in one paragraph. A way of thinking that leads to a way of living. So I would ask you this morning, What troubles you in your soul? What are you worrying about? What thing is captivating your mind and leaving you constantly uneasy? Have you gone into the presence of God before His throne because you're accepted and because He loves you? And talk to him about that. Say, but you understand, Pastor, I, I have, I have, you know, uh, anxiety that's chronic anxiety and I deal with it all the time. So do I. Okay? That was a compassionate way of saying so do I. I got it too. And the, those of us who have that kind of anxiety that comes from absolutely no reason at all, that just grips us, creates a panic attack, makes our arms feel tingly, makes our legs feel weak, and makes us breathe funny. I'm going to say to you this morning that where you should go first before any other place is to the throne of God and talk to Him about it. Do I have medicine that I take for that? Yes, I do. 
But I realized one day that before I was talking to God about what was going on in me, I was taking the medicine and then I would feel better and walk away and I would never talk to God about it at all. Peace. But he doesn't make it go away. That's for your good. But I don't like these circumstances. It's for your good. But I want, do you want Jesus? Do you want to become like Jesus? We happily quote Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, that God is at work for good on behalf of those who love him. We don't happily quote verse 29 where he says that this is being done to conform you to the image of his son. That he actually predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. And that's the reason these things are happening in your life. For your good. Are we willing to really cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us? Are we willing in the midst of all the junk that happens every day to be able to say, God, I know that you are sovereign. I know that this would not be happening if it wasn't part of your will. I know that you love me. I know that you are being good to me. Help me by the Holy Spirit's power to believe that through Christ I can be a conqueror. I want to close by saying that our God is powerful. He's stunning in beauty. He's pure and holy. He's merciful to his people whom he chose and redeemed through the blood of Jesus. And if you're hearing me say that, and you're saying it's true, and you agree, And will you pray that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to his magnificence and help you to live in obedience until we see him face to face? Let's pray. Father, your word is truth because it is your word. And there are so many times that I see the beauty and the genuineness and the holiness of your word. And I affirm it in the moment and I walk away and deny it in my actions. But I just want to say again this morning, on my behalf and on behalf of these people, that I'm so thankful that when I do that, you still love me. I'm still your child. You don't push me away.
But Father, I would ask, and I would ask for myself and for all of us here, that you would help us to be people who not only agree that your word is truth, but that you'd help us and remind us through the Holy Spirit's work that it is possible to go forward in obedience and to live in this with a centrality of your power at work in us through the Holy Spirit. And to be able to walk in victory as your children. Because your word is truth. Father, I don't think we need another vision of you. You have revealed yourself to us in your son Jesus. And you have revealed yourself to us in your word. I don't think we need another vision or a new vision. We just need to live in light of the vision that you've already given us. I pray that you would give us power to do that. In your son's name, amen.